Our gracious Heavenly Father, as we have worshipped you and lifted your name on high, we are now ready to open your word. We'd like to say that as we open your word, we're expecting to feel comfort and peace, but sometimes your word comes in like a sword. We want to give you permission, Lord, to cut everything out of our life that does not glorify your name. Bring your spirit into the preaching of this word, Lord, so it can accomplish its work fully and completely in us. We know that we still don't reflect your image as fully as we should. And so we need this work done inside of us, Lord. Bless us, we pray. And we pray for your mighty angels to hold back the forces of the enemy, that he would not be able to stand up and block this message, but that it would come through pure and straight from your word. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. I have discovered the grand plot of Satan to destroy this church. After this last week, I know what he's going to do, and it's not what you expect. Although he wants with all his hellish desires to kill the church, burn it to the ground, drive out all its members, and plant his own synagogue in its place... He's come up with a much more effective plan. The devil has decided that it is far more efficient to destroy the church by working from the inside out. He's comfortable if the church stays just how it looks today. He's comfortable if Seventh-day Adventists continue to worship on Saturday it can still fit his hellish plans for members to come week after week. All he needs to do is to lead them to make one small change. A change so small that practically no one will notice. But that single small change is so significant, it will bring down the entire church. Do you know what it is? Jesus warned against it in Matthew 23. John the Revelator saw it in Revelation 3. The Apostle Paul prophetically warned the church concerning it in 2 Timothy 3. Ellen White wrote about it over and over and over again in 1887. What is it? The peril of formalism. I'd like to invite you to take your Bibles and turn with me to read it for yourself in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 1 through 5. 
2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 1 through 5. But know this, that in the last days perilous or stressful times will come, for men will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, boasters, proud, blasphemers, disobedient to parents, unthankful, unholy, unloving, unforgiving, slanderers, without self-control, brutal, despisers of good, traitors, headstrong, haughty, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having a form of godliness, but denying its power, and from such people turn away. That verse is what you call intense. Or as some people like to say, heavy or deep. It's one of those verses that you read and you just kind of shudder a little bit inside. It's it's one of those verses that goes straight to the point. I mean, heaven forbid, but some, some of that may apply to me. You know, for years, I used to read this text and apply it to everyone else who was in the world. I'd shake my head in agreement and say, yep, that's a pretty accurate picture of the world we live in right now. 2018, that is how it looks out in the cities of Portland. That's it. A bunch of godless, selfish people out there, and that's just, and it's just getting worse. But this last week when I read this verse, I began to take a second look at it. And I think, I began to think as I read this verse, why would the Apostle Paul write the church a special warning message about how bad worldly people would be at the end of time? If this was a description of the world, the Apostle Paul certainly didn't need to tell them this and about how bad it's going to be in the world at the end of time because the world already fit the description of 2 Timothy during Paul's time. And before, all the way back to the time of Abraham, you have a world that looked like this. You just go to Genesis 15, verse 16, and God was already talking about the iniquity of the Amorites being so bad that it almost had filled up the cup of his indignation. He said, I'm giving them four generations more before I destroy them all. It's that bad. You go back to the time of Noah, and the world was so bad, so bad, that the Lord said, I must destroy it all with a flood. Oh no. Second Timothy chapter 3 is not describing something that will catch us, uh, not describing uh, the world as if it would catch us by surprise that the world would look like this. Even during the time of Jesus, 3,000 years ago, we find the world just as it is pictured 3,000... The world just as it is pictured 3,000 years later in 2018. 
Even in the time of the disciples in the early church, the world was just as corrupt as Paul paints the picture in 2 Timothy 3, 1 through 5. Just take, take some time and read Romans chapter 1, verses 18 through 31. Concerning why the wrath of God is revealed against humanity, you will see that the picture that is painted is nearly identical to the one painted in 2 Timothy. Turn with me over to Romans chapter 1, verses 28 through 32. Romans chapter 1, verses 28 through 32. Notice what it says here. Romans chapter 1, verse 28. And even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge, God gave them over to a debased mind to do those things which are not fitting, being filled with all unrighteousness, sexual immorality, wickedness, covetousness, maliciousness, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, evil-mindedness. They are whispers, backbiters, haters of God, violent, proud, boasters, inventors of evil things, disobedient to parents, undiscerning, untrustworthy, unloving, unforgiving, unmerciful, who knowing the righteous judgments of God that those who practice such things are deserving of death, not only do the same, but also approve of those who practice them. Does that sound pretty similar to the list in Second Timothy? I mean, you could almost pick out word for word uh, similarities there. And yet in Romans, it's clearly, it's clearly a description of the world at the time and prior to the Apostle Paul. Now we get to 2 Timothy chapter 3, and, he's, and he says, this is what it's going to look like when? In 2 Timothy 3, when's it going to look like that? At the end of time. If Paul was trying to surprise the church that at the end of time, this is what the world is going to look like, he did a really bad job because that's what the world already looked like. It was sinful. It was corrupt. It was malignant. It was, it was dead and dying and corrupt. What Paul is prophesying about in 2 Timothy was not the condition of the world in the last days, but the condition of the church. The Christian church, the Laodicean Seventh-day Adventist church. You see, this was the big shocker. How could a church fueled with the Holy Spirit power that came at Pentecost, a church that Jesus Christ personally instructed and raised up, a church filled with men and women who are more willing to face a den of lions and die a martyr's death, than to give up their faith in Jesus Christ. How could that church look like the church painted in 2 Timothy chapter 3? That is what blew the socks off of the entire Christian church as they read it from the pen of Paul. How could a living, on-fire church drift into the cold formalism of a spiritually dead church. This was the jaw-dropping shocker of Paul's prophecy. He looked down the portals of time and the Holy Spirit revealed to him the true state of God's people at the end of time. And the saddest part was that outside of the form of godliness, aside from the fact that they entered into a church once a week with suits, ties, and dresses, outside of that, 
the Christians, the Christians living at the end look just like the world. Well, not on the outside, of course. It was their heart that was in harmony with the world. You read through 2 Timothy chapter 3, and it says nothing about what they wear, the type of music they play, or the building they met in. There's not a single thing about outward appearance in 2 Timothy 3. Instead, you find it's all matters of the heart. Loving yourself. Loving money. Being boastful and proud. Disobedient to parents behind closed doors. Cherishing unforgiveness and bitterness towards another church member, just as the worldly people cherish bitterness towards one another. Loving pleasure rather than loving God. Those are all things that you can hide quite well underneath your Sabbath dress. The problem is that their heart was in harmony with Satan and the world, while their outward display professed a Christian identity. And according to Paul, that was what would rock the church at the end of time. That very thing is what would rock the church at the end of time, just before Jesus came. The peril of formalism. This was the very thing that Satan had used so successfully against the Jewish nation. When the Jews experienced the crushing defeat and subsequent slavery in Babylon, which was God's divine judgment for their idolatry, Satan led them to overreact as a nation, and in order to protect themselves from ever experiencing the woes of liberalism again, they swung all the way over to ultra-conservatism. We will not be a law-breaking church again. We've seen it. We've seen the retribution of God on our liberal brothers and sisters. We will never, never, never be that church ever again. And they swung so far that they planted themselves deep in the bedrock of formalism, immovable. Nobody is going to move us to that side again, ever, ever. And what the Jewish nation didn't realize is that in scrambling up the bank and out of one ditch, they crossed completely over the road and fell headlong into the other ditch. The peril of formalism. Their religion was transformed into a self-righteous, legalistic, pharisaical hypocrisy. It gave Satan pleasure to see God's people swing so far to the right, for Satan would be far more successful in killing all spirituality through a religion of formalism. Notice Jesus' own words about the Jewish nation and leaders in Matthew chapter 23, verse 2 and verses 4 through 5. Matthew 23, starting in verse 2 and verses 4 through 5 saying, Jesus spoke to the multitudes and his disciples, saying, The scribes and Pharisees sit in Moses' seat. Verse 4, For they bind heavy burdens hard to bear and lay them on men's shoulders, but they themselves will not move them with one of their fingers. 
but all their works they do to be seen by men. You know, during the time of Jesus, the Jewish leaders and many of the members of the Jewish religion criticized others who did not meet their criteria or standard. They loaded them down with requirements and rules not even mentioned in the Word of God. Policies which they had made that God had never made. The great controversy, page 568, it says, While the Jews secretly trampled upon every principle of the law of God, they were outwardly rigorous in the observance of its precepts, loading it down with exactions and traditions that made obedience painful and burdensome. The Jews were especially rigorous about the keeping of the Sabbath. Certain rabbinical laws forbade the eating of eggs that were laid on the Sabbath. Why? Because the, sa- because the chicken who laid that egg had worked on the Sabbath, therefore making his egg unclean. There was a couple exceptions. If you really wanted to eat the egg, you had to first kill the chicken for Sabbath breaking. If you killed the chicken for Sabbath breaking, then you could eat the egg. Where in the Word of God can you find that sort of policy? But that wasn't the only policy they made that cannot be found in God's Word. It wasn't just their man-made policies that delighted Satan and was condemned by Jesus. Jesus also chastised them for focusing on religious obligations while excluding the more important matters of a changed heart. In Matthew chapter 23, verses 23 through 24, Jesus said, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, For you pay tithe of mint and anise and cumin and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faith. These you ought to have done without leaving the others undone. There were two things about the Jewish formalism that made it a repulsion to God and a delight to Satan. The first thing, the first bedrock foundation of the formalism of the Jewish economy was man-made rules and church policies that God himself does not require is the cold formalism of Judaism. Number one. Number two. And attention to the details of religious rules, regulations, and obligations, all the while ignoring the conditions of the heart, is the cold formalism of Judaism. Two. We're going to hear these two again. But the first one is man-made rules and church policies which God himself does not require. The second one is an attention to the details of religious rules, regulations, and obligations while completely ignoring the condition of their heart or other people's heart. 
All of this Christ condemned. All of this Satan rejoiced in. But this wasn't the only time that Satan used formalism with great success. Again, when the Christian church had grown and spread throughout the Roman Empire, Satan once again sought to destroy it through formalism. And the Church of Rome, the Roman Catholic Church, came into existence. The Great Controversy, page 568, says, There is a striking similarity between the Church of Rome and the Jewish Church at the time of Christ's first advent. Why is there a striking similarity between the two? Because the devil sought to destroy one with his, uh, the effective method that he was able to destroy the other. It was the same dragon behind both of them. One trying to destroy God's people in Judaism through formalism. The other trying, uh, the same trying to destroy God's people in Christianity through formalism. Great Controversy, page 568, continues. Papists, or popes, place crosses upon their churches, upon their altars, and upon their garments. Everywhere is seen the insignia of the cross. Everywhere is outwardly honored and exalted. But the teachings of Christ are buried beneath a mass of senseless traditions, false interpretations, and rigorous exactions. The Savior's words concerning the bigoted Jews apply with still greater force to the leaders of the Roman Catholic Church. They bind heavy burdens and grievous and grievous to be borne and lay them on men's shoulders, but they themselves will not move them with one of their fingers. Matthew 23, 4. Conscientious souls are kept in constant terror, fearing the wrath of an offended God, while many of the dignitaries of the church are living in luxury and sensual pleasure. And that is exactly what Martin Luther found when he also went to Rome. Martin Luther discovered when he journeyed as a Catholic monk to Rome that the church was corrupt through and through, and yet... It was uh, very exacting in its religious requirements and obligations upon its members. The inside of the church was as hollow, as hollow as an empty cave. But the outside, they made sure to be as beautiful as anything that could be found on earth. They were focused on the details of the outside while they neglected the importance of the inside. When Luther went to Rome, he wanted a spiritual experience. And so he visited the graves of 46 popes. He saw the bones, 80,000 bones of martyrs that were set up in relics in Rome. He visited the staircase called the Scala Sancta. This staircase was believed to be a holy site. It was said that this staircase was Pilate's staircase that was taken from Jerusalem. And this was the staircase that Jesus went up, according to them, before he was tried in the praetorium. The Scala Sancta. It was believed by Catholics that visiting holy sites and performing the obligations that the church has made 
will allow people to receive forgiveness of sins. If one were to climb the stairs on, the, and on your knees, one stair at a time, praying an Our Father, a Hail Mary, and a uh, Thy will be done. Now, there's another one. What is it? Our Father, Hail Mary, and... I haven't done it, so it's not fresh in my mind. Anyways, if you pray those prayers on every single step leading up to the top, well, you will be freed from a thousand years of purgatory. Your sins will be forgiven. Something that the Bible doesn't teach at all. Once again, man-made policies and requirements were instituted in the church even though God had never sanctioned, sanctioned them. You know, I've been to the very staircases Martin Luther climbed on his knees. And to this very day, people are still climbing those staircases on their knees, being told the very same thing they were told hundreds of years ago. If you climb these staircases on your knees, you will be forgiven of your sins. In fact, I've got a picture of a notice right outside the the staircases saying, "By uh, by the authority of the Pope, we declare to you, the church, that if you perform these requirements, we can guarantee that you will be given indulgences and forgiven of your sins and you won't have to worry about those things you've done in the past. Just bear through it, brother and sister. Bear through it on your knees up every step. And once you get to the top, you'll be home free. No mention of a heart change. No mention of a change of life in those indulgences. The only thing that they are concerned about is outward conformity to the obligations of the church. While still climbing the stairs on his knees, Martin Luther said that he heard a thundering voice in his heart declare, The just shall live by faith. And that shook Martin Luther to realize that God does not require everything that the church requires. And that the policies and laws of the church are not what should bind men's hearts or bind men's conscience. You are bound to the law of your Creator, not to the law of your pastor. The second thing that Martin Luther witnessed in Rome is that although the Roman priests, popes, and ecclesiastical authorities were very careful and rigorous about all the rules, regulations, and policies of their church, their own lives were corrupt, vile, unscriptural, and degenerate. They had rotten hearts while professing to worship God in the most sanctified and holy ways. Martin Luther said of his experience in Rome, Where God builds a church, the devil puts up a chapel next door. It is almost incredible what infamous actions are committed at Rome. One would require to see it and hear it in order to believe it. It is an extraordinary saying that if there is a hell, Rome is built upon it. It is an abyss from which all sins proceed. 
Rome, once the holiest city, was now the worst. Let me get out of this terrible dungeon. I took onions to Rome and brought back garlic. I don't know what he's saying there because I like garlic, but... But I do understand his sentiments. For everybody in this room knows what it's like to come into a body of believers and realize you're surrounded by hypocrites. And the first thing you want to do is to shake things off and just say, I got to leave. I got to go. Now, I'm not saying that the answer is to go. But you and Martin Luther and me and... Everyone else here in this room can understand what that feels like to walk into a place where you should see the heart of Jesus and you find the heart of the world. And it becomes uh, even worse when it's the heart of the world with the suit of the church. That's even more difficult to swallow. Once again, we find that what was true of Judaism became true of the Roman Catholic Church. Man-made rules and church policies that God himself does not require is the cold formalism of Catholicism. And attention to the details of religious rules, regulations, and obligations while ignoring a transformation of the heart is the cold formalism of Catholicism. A.G. Daniels. Anybody here recognize that name, A.G. Daniels? A.G. Daniels was one of the presidents of the Seventh-day Adventist Church. And unfortunately, I'm not a church historian. So in my ignorance, I thought to myself, I wonder if he was one of the first president, if he was the first president of the Adventist Church. Wrong. I know he wasn't the first president. It was something like G.I. Butler or something. I I can't remember. Uh, One thing I do know is that up until 1930, none of them wore ties. Just <laughs> Sorry, I probably shouldn't have said that. Um, it was one president, then James White. Then another president for two years, then James White. Then another president, then James White. And then you come to A.G. Daniels. A.G. Daniels, he was the president of the Adventist Church from 1901 to 1922 the longest-serving president of the Adventist Church of any of the presidents. So he probably has had one of the greatest impacts on the Seventh-day Adventist Church. He wrote one book. He probably wrote more books, but his most prominent book is a book called Christ Our Righteousness. In this book, page 30, this is what he said. Formalism is most deceptive and ruinous. It is the hidden, unsuspected rock upon which, through the centuries, the church has so often been well-nigh wrecked. Paul warns us that the form of godliness without the power of God will be one of the perils of the last days and admonishes us to turn away from the deceptive, bewitching thing. Just as Satan destroyed the connection of God's people with heaven through cold formalism during the time of Jesus, and again through the dark ages of the rule of Catholicism, so again the Bible predicts that this dreaded condition will settle upon God's people 
the Seventh-day Adventist Christian Church, who are living at the end of time. We aren't immune. In fact, prophecy says it would happen. Revelation chapter 3, you can read that prophecy. Revelation 3, verses 14 through 16. This is to the, a letter to the last of the seven churches. It says, And to the angel of the church of Laodiceans write, These things, says the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God. I know your works, that you are neither cold nor hot. I could wish you were cold or hot. So then, because you are lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, I will vomit you out of my mouth. I don't know why, but in my own mind, I picture the Lord whispering that to his people. I don't think it brings God great delight that he would shout that message out, point his finger and say, I told you so. I think with tears, he comes to the members of the Adventist church and the Christian church and says, I could wish that you were either cold or hot. But when I came to you, I found that you were a mixture of the two. On Sabbath, you proclaim that you are hot. But by the things that you think of and say during the week, I know that you're not. Lukewarm Christianity, the church of Laodicea, is our church, friends. You see, lukewarm, by definition, is half-hearted Christianity. You have some hot and some cold, and together that makes lukewarm. In a letter dated to 1903, Two years into A.G. Daniel's presidency, Ellen White wrote, Half-hearted Christians are worse than infidels, for their deceptive words and non-committal position lead many astray. The infidel shows his colors. The lukewarm Christian deceives both parties. He is neither a good worldling nor a good Christian. Satan uses him to work, to do a work that no one else can do. Acts of the Apostles, page 430. Among many of the professing followers of Christ, there is the same pride, formalism, and selfishness, the same spirit of oppression that held so large a place in the Jewish heart. In the future, men claiming to be Christ's representatives will take a course similar to that followed by the priests and rulers in their treatment of Christ and the Apostles. So really... To know whether formalism has taken over our own church, Stone Tower, we must ask ourselves, do we resemble the two criteria for formalism that envelop Judaism and Catholicism? Do we also have that criteria here? If so, we should tremble inside. For that, my friends, Satan has already successfully brought down entire denominations, entire churches with those two criteria. 
What's the two criteria? Number one, do man-made rules and church policies that God himself does not require in Scripture find, find a prominent place at Stone Tower? If so, this is the cold formalism of Adventism. Number two, is our attention to the details of religious rules, regulations, and obligations while ignoring the conditions of our own hearts and others something we see at Stone Tower? If so, this is the cold formalism of Adventism. I'd like you to think over some of these questions. I'd like you to pray over some of these questions. Do we see an unforgiving spirit at Stone Tower? Do we see bitterness towards one another at Stone Tower? Do we see pride and self-ambition at Stone Tower? Do we see a secret love of pleasure that is hidden by religious pretensions at Stone Tower? Do we see headstrong people at Stone Tower? Do we see individuals who do not have self-control at Stone Tower? Do we see individuals who would rather complain than give thanks at Stone Tower? Does the destructive effects of gossip find itself in the hallways of our church or the homes of our members at Stone Tower? If so, I've just gone through the list of 2 Timothy 3, 1 through 5. And if it resonates, praise the Lord. Because when these sorts of things resonate and we get it deep down in our hearts, then real revival and change can happen. It should resonate. If this is true of our church, then the peril of formalism has already settled in these very pews. And we should all tremble for the real peril of formalism is that if we continue to be ensnared by her cold hands, our church will be lost. Because a form of godliness is only a cloak for unrighteousness. Christian Service, page 40. Gracious Father, before I read this quote, I don't know if my brothers and sisters are feeling the same thing that I'm feeling right now. But we need your spirit here. This sermon is real, it's heavy, it's deep. It cuts. Oh, it cuts. Please, Lord, do your work inside of us today. Bring revival to this church today. Heal the wounds of the past today. Help us today, Lord, 
for tomorrow the impressions will begin to fade. The strong cutting of your word will begin to hurt a little bit less tomorrow. Do it today, Lord, while we feel it the strongest. Speak to us, Lord, and shake us out of this formalism that we can be a revived church, a living church, an on-fire church. Do this for us, Lord, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Christian Service, page 40. Satan is now working with all his insinuating, deceiving power to lead men away from the work of the third angel's message, which is to be proclaimed with mighty power. For when when the enemy sees that the Lord is blessing his people and preparing them to discern his delusions... He will work with his masterly power to bring in fanaticism on the one hand and cold formalism on the other, that he may gather in a harvest of souls. Now is the time to watch watch unceasingly, watch for the first step of advance that Satan may make among us. There are moral icebergs in our church. There are plenty of formalists who can make an imposing display but cannot shine as lights in the world. Perhaps one of the most difficult things to do is to take an honest evaluation of yourself or your church. It's never easy. Never has been, never will be. But if we are going to progress and move through forward and enter in through the golden gates of paradise at last, at some point, we will have to take an honest evaluation of ourselves. Because it is painful, it's hard. Because it hurts and hurts deep, it hard. it's hard. It requires humility. It requires the sacrifice of pride. It requires true heartfelt repentance. It requires us to ask for the forgiveness of others. But unless our church and every member in this building is broken through humility on the rock of Jesus Christ, we will not see heaven. Unless there is reform and transformation, and I'm talking about internal reform and transformation, we cannot be counted with the citizens of heaven. Matthew 21, verses 44 through 45 says, And whoever falls on this stone will be broken. Whoever falls on this stone, that's Jesus Christ, will be broken. What does that mean, to be broken? That's talking about human pride. It's talking about an honest revealing of the spirit of the true condition of our heart. 
When we fall on Jesus Christ, when we really fall on Him, it opens up before us. The scales fall from our eyes and we see like Paul, the Apostle Paul, what a wretched man I truly am. And we are broken. And let me tell you, that brokenness needs to come. Because the Word of God says, but on whomever the rock falls, it will grind him to powder. Much better to fall on the rock and be broken than to have the rock fall on you and be ground to powder. Verse 45, Now when the chief priests and Pharisees heard his parable, they perceived that he was speaking of them. Could Jesus also be speaking to us today? Come, fall on the rock, Jesus Christ. The antidote to the peril of formalism is a revival of primitive godliness. When God's people seek in their homes and in their church for true revival through Bible study and prayer and true heart confession and repentance, when the baggage of unforgiveness and bitterness is dealt with and members begin to love and trust one another again, when the whisper of gossip is silenced in the halls because women and men are engaged in prayer, then God will pour out His Spirit and revive this church. This will happen for the prophet has said in Maranatha, page 33, Before the final visitation of God's judgment upon the earth, there will be among the people of God such a revival of primitive godliness as has not been witnessed since apostolic times. The Spirit and power of God will be poured out upon His church. I believe that God's prophet looked down to the end of time and saw stone towers. By faith, I believe it. By faith, I believe God's prophets saw Stone Tower coming to their knees and falling on the rock Jesus Christ and being willing to, willing to have all their pride broken up and laid in the dust. By faith, I think that Ellen White saw members of Stone Tower with tears streaming down their faces going to a brother or sister who they have been at odds with for years and saying, we can't carry this into the kingdom of heaven. Will you forgive me? By faith, I think the prophet of God saw the Spirit of God falling upon this church and a revival coming to Stone Tower. Men and women coming to prayer meeting. Men and women coming to vespers. Men and women coming to the Bible on their knees, praying and weeping and saying, Lord, if you don't lead us, we will perish. Lord, we need you. We cannot skip our morning worships and our morning devotions. We can't do it any longer because cold formalism does not cut it when it comes to the judgment of God. It doesn't matter what you are wearing. It doesn't matter if you had your suit and tie on when you came to church. 
because all of that burns quite nicely at the end of time. What matters is where is your heart today? Where is your relationship with God? And where is your relationship with the members of your church? I'd like to make an appeal. Three, actually. The first appeal is a return to primitive godliness. At the beginning of this year, we talked a lot about revival and reformation that is needed in our church. In 2019, the Lord has put it on my heart to lead this church in evangelism, to reach out. But before that occurs, every member of this church needs to be in the Word of God daily. Every member of this church needs to be on their knees daily asking the Lord for strength and guidance and help. And if that is not happening currently right now in your life, today is the day that it's going to change. Today is the day that you are going to kickstart those morning devotions once again. Today is the day that you are going to hear the voice of God speaking to you once more from His book on a day-to-day basis. Today is the day that you begin seeing miracles take place in your life because no longer are you in charge, but God is now in charge. And I'd like to call upon you today to make that commitment before the Lord. And if that is you and you would like to respond to this appeal, I'd ask you to raise your hand to raise your hand high and say, Lord, I am committing every day to spend time with you because I need a revival in my life. You can put your hands down. The Lord sees your hands. There's a second appeal I'd like to make. And that is to call you For those who have carried a critical and judgmental spirit of others. To come before the Lord in repentance today. Confessing a spirit that has not been in harmony with Jesus Christ. A spirit of fault finding. A spirit of looking for errors in others. And maybe you did it innocently. Maybe it was just a reaction. Maybe it was just, you know, you you struggled so much to look at your own life that you had to find somebody else to look at. I don't know. I've done that before. Okay? You're not alone. This is a human condition to criticize other people. But the attitude and spirit of criticism and judgmentalism has wounded souls. And deep down you know it. And you would like to come to the Lord and confess and repent of carrying that spirit into God's house. Is there anybody here who would say, Lord, that's me and I'm sorry. Lord, that's me, and I'm sorry. We're going to pray about this in just a moment here. There's a third appeal that I'd like to make. And this one may be the most difficult of all. 
It is going to require the strength of the Lord for you to carry through this third appeal. There are some today who have been carrying the baggage of bitterness and unforgiveness towards another brother or sister in Christ for years here. And today the Lord is asking you to bury the hatchet, to get rid of that baggage, to no longer have anything between you and your brothers and sisters in this church. And the onus is on you to go to that other person. Maybe you've been waiting for them to come to you. Maybe you think they're the ones that need to apologize. But friends, if you have that person in your mind right now, the onus is on you. Because I didn't put that person's face in your head. The Lord did. And that means he is calling you to make things right with your brother and your sister. And until that relationship is reconciled, How in the world can we receive the spirit transforming spirit of God in our hearts and in our lives? We have got to bury the hatchet today. If that is you and you say, Lord, help me to do what you are calling me to do. Please raise your hand. Amen. Amen. And God will give you strength. We're going to pray about those three things together. But before we do, let me read Jesus' promise from Matthew 11, 28 through 29. Jesus says, Come unto me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. If you made a commitment today, I'd like to invite you to kneel with me in prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you for the gift of your Holy Spirit. Thank you for speaking to our hearts with the clear cutting truths that Scripture proclaims. We know, Lord, that you you never Cut or cause pain unless you intend to heal and cause joy. And we know, Father, that the commitments we have made today are commitments that you have called us to make. And by faith, Lord, I know that you will give us the strength and power to move forward and follow through with those commitments that you have called us to make today, whether it's devotions, or whether it's asking for forgiveness for a critical spirit, or whether it's uh, going to our brothers and sisters and, and seeking to reconcile ourselves uh, with them. Thank you, Lord, that the peril of formalism is not the destiny of this church. Please bring your revival here that you so badly want to bring. Make us ready, Lord. Make us ready to be workers for you. And make us ready for your soon coming. All this we pray in the precious name of Jesus. Amen.